Bibles with me, please, to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And there is an insert in your Bible, or in your bulletin, excuse me, if you'd like to follow along, what we're going to be considering this morning. And while you're turning in your Bibles, I, I would like to, not right now, but I would like to ask you to be sure to look at the ministry memo. Uh, today's ministry memo, next week's ministry memo, and the following week's ministry memo, Lord willing, are going to be outlining everything that the transition team slash pastoral search team is doing right now in regard to the pastoral search. And as you will see, this is only one-third of it, what's on this ministry memo. There is a lot, a lot that the transition team slash pastoral search team is doing. And Keith, uh, uh, not alluded, Keith mentioned this morning uh, some of what's already been taking place. Uh, the transition slash pastoral search team has prepared and sent out a church profile. In other words, it explains to any interested candidates about Seneca Community Church. And it's an 11-page document. Uh, and it, it fully explains everything about the church, uh, where it's been, where it is, where we trust God to go. We've set forth about the purpose, mission, vision, so on. It's all there. And um, we had talked together about ministries uh, to to which we could send the church profile. And we chose uh, around, I think there are around 15 different organizations that we have sent it to. And uh, Hope and I prepared that and sent it out on Wednesday. And since Wednesday, uh, we've received and passed on uh, five different uh, resumes that we've received. And so uh, God's beginning to prepare that way and open that door for us. We got a couple or three more last night pretty late, but we, we decided not to send them out yet because uh, one was a little complicated trying to download it and so on. So in the next couple of days, they will be sent out to the transition team as well. So we, we just ask, as it mentions in the ministry memo, that you please pray that we continue to pray together about this whole whole process and God's next step and next plan for us as a church family. So uh, just follow your ministry memo. That'll keep you uh, well informed as to what we have been doing and will be doing uh, over the next few weeks. The receiving and reviewing of resumes, will uh, we will keep open the receiving of resumes for 45 to 60 days, more or less. And during that time, the transition team will begin to rank, for lack of a better word, uh, those that we believe would be a, a good fit. And then we'll continue to process that will be explained on your ministry memos. So we thank you, first of all, for your faithful prayers and ask you to continue to pray with us and for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here together this morning, and we thank you for this beautiful letter that the Apostle Paul 
wrote to the believers in Philippi, and we thank you for its uh, application to us. And we just pray that you would bless our time together in your word. We ask your blessing on the children's church and junior church that are meeting now. And we thank you, Lord, for all you are and for all that you will do in our presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning we're going to continue our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Turning Toward Joy, Discovering a Joy That Circumstances Cannot Change. In previous weeks, we have looked together at verses 1 through 26 of chapter 1, and we've considered together the joy of community and the joy of adversity. And this morning, we will consider verses 27 through 30 as we consider together the joy of integrity. And I'd like to read these verses for us right now. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. <clears throat> Paul writes, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Many people uh, in our day are consumed by the pursuit of, of happiness. And not being able to control our circumstances always, we find that many people are actually being controlled by their circumstances. And that can have to do with a job, with relationships, with our home, or in some cases, our church even fails to make us happy. And as a result, we live in a society in which if a relationship doesn't work for me, if a job doesn't work for me, if my church isn't working for me or the way I want it to work, we live in a society that lives in a time of disposal. Dump it and move on. And, and the sad thing is that many, many people only remain in a church at the max about five years before they move on. Now, we know people, and some of you, who have been here uh, for many years, and, and that's a very commendable, commendable thing. But within Christianity, many, many times, people just move from church to church because we live in a society that... Uh, looks for what they want and not for how a pe person might serve in a church, but what can this church do for me? And so people are seeking for happiness and because it flees them and they aren't able to grasp it, many people arrive at the jaded view of life expressed in Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, if happiness, the fleeting feeling of exhilaration, is elusive, biblical joy is not. There's a big difference, huge difference, between happiness and joy. 
Happiness, again, is the fleeting feeling of exhilaration. Biblical joy is the settled conviction that God sovereignly, lovingly, and wisely controls the events of life for each and every believer, for his glory, God's glory, and for our good. And that is available to all of us who know Jesus Christ. During the Vietnam War, a chopper pilot was killed. On his tombstone in New Hampshire, his parents inscribed these words written by John Stuart Mill. These are the words. War is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling, which thinks nothing is worth a war, is worse. A man who has nothing which he cares more about than his own personal safety is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless he is made free and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. In his book, Against the Night, Charles Colson uh, writes about the fact that our culture has deteriorated to such an extent that individualism is the word for the day. And individualism reigns supreme in our society. Few care about anyone or anything else than themselves and are very unwilling to stand up for moral convictions. To illustrate his point, uh, Colson remembers this incident. In 1978, during President Carter's attempt to reinstate draft registration, newspapers across the country carried a photo that I have carried in my mind ever since. A young Princeton student defiantly wielding a poster emblazoned with the words, nothing is worth dying for. There are some things that are worth dying for. And some people are dying for things that are not worth dying for. But there are things that are worth dying for. But this uh, Princeton University student felt that that was ludicrous. There is nothing that is worth dying for. Now, a person, you've heard this, a person who refuses to stand for something will sooner or later fall for anything. And because of his stand for his faith, Paul was not only willing to suffer for Jesus Christ, but he actually did suffer for Jesus Christ. And we consider that as we consider together the joy of adversity, and we will continue to see some other ways in which Paul was not only willing, but actually did suffer for his faith in Christ. Now, he knew the Philippian believers were going through some very difficult times, and he anticipated that they would go through some more difficult times. And he really hoped to be able to be with them when they went through these difficult times. But that was no guarantee. And he writes to them about that. He tells them, man, I'd really like to be with you, but if I'm not, remember to stand firm for Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul explains to the Philippians here could be called a, a game plan for how to go through suffering and to go through difficult times and to still be characterized by integrity. Now, as your notes read, 
As a coach presenting his game plan to his players, Paul sent his friends his four priorities for success, four priorities that would enable the Philippian believers and that will enable us to be characterized by the joy of integrity. Priority number one is conduct. And Paul writes about this in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. I've shared with you that um, when I was growing up, uh, on our report card, that was one of the categories we were graded in. Um, and I can remember uh, as early as, well, second grade is my first recollection of being graded on conduct. And unfortunately, that followed me all through my elementary school years. When I got into high school, there was no more conduct. Um, but in elementary, there was. And it was one of my poorest grades. And I'm kind of sad to say that today, but uh, it, was, it was the truth. But as Paul writes here about integrity and having the joy of integrity, he talks about priority number one, which is conduct. And he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the Philippians clearly understood what Paul was writing to them. Most biblical scholars believe that um, this letter, Paul's letter to the Philippians, was written right around the time of Nero. Now, their city, Philippi, was a Roman colony. In other words, it was controlled by Rome, even though they were 800 miles away. And so it was a Roman colony, and the Philippians took great pride in the fact that they were part of Rome. And so Paul addresses that whole point and points out to them, okay, you are citizens of Rome by virtue of the fact that Philippi is a Roman colony. And then Paul writes, Paul tells them, yes, you are proud of the fact that you live in Philippi, and even though you live in Philippi, you are Roman citizens. And Paul kicks off from that and says this, conduct yourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God. Boy, there's a lesson for us right there. We have the privilege of living in the greatest, I believe, the greatest country in the world. We have so many, many blessings here. And we are proud and humbled and thankful to be able to say, I am a citizen of the United States of America. And that's a good thing to be able to say. But folks... What Paul wrote to the Philippians, by application, he writes to us. Yes, you should be humbled, you should be thankful, you should be grateful for the fact that you are citizens of such a great country. But, here's the thing. Don't conduct yourselves as citizens of the United States of America only. Conduct yourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, if we conduct ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of God, do you think we'll stand out in our culture? Mm, yeah, I think we will. 
even though our country is considered a Christian country, and that's debatable, but even though our country is considered a Christian company, a country, and yes, we are founded on biblical principles, if we really live according to what God's Word says, and being citizens of the kingdom of God, we will stand out. And we don't have to bring it on. It will just take place. Because we will be different. We will not laugh at the jokes that others laugh at. We will not tell the jokes that others tell. We will not be crooked when we fill out our income tax forms. We will not swindle other people. We will not gossip about other people. We will be different. We will work hard as our employers expect us to. If we are employers, we will treat our employees as the Word of God tells us to. It will permeate every area of our life. If we are a man, we will be a godly man. If we are a woman, we will be a godly woman. If we are married, we will be godly spouses. We will live according to the Word of God. If we are parents, we will be godly parents. We will not be like the culture in which we live. We will be citizens of the kingdom of God. And so the Philippians understood what Paul was saying. Yes, we're thankful to be a part of the Roman Empire. It had a lot of benefits to it, and they recognized their citizenship, and yet they realized we are, more importantly, citizens of the kingdom of God. A church leader in the second century, his name was Dionysus, described the way early Christians followed Paul's instructions. Listen to these words. While they dwell in Greek or barbarian cities, according to each man's lot has been cast, and follow the customs of the land in clothing and food and other matters of daily life, yet the condition of citizenship which they exhibit is wonderful and admittedly strange. They live in countries of their own, but simply as, here's a big word, sojourners, enduring the lot of foreigners. They exist in the flesh, but they live not after the flesh. They spend their existence upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. What a, what a beautiful thing here. These people were noted for being different. They lived in Philippi, a barbarian city. They were citizens of Rome, even though 800 miles away because of a war that had taken place. And yet, they recognized, first and foremost, they were citizens of the kingdom of God. And we need to recognize that too. And our conduct needs to exemplify that. Priority number two, is consistency. And Paul writes in Philippians 1.27, whether I come and see you or remain absent. Now again, Paul was hoping that he would be able to go and be with and encourage the Philippians during a time of testing, during a time of difficulty, during a time of impending persecution. But he writes to them, even if I don't make it, if I cannot make it and cannot be with you, 
live a consistent Christian life. And boy, this, this is a word for us today. How many of us, and I include myself in this, how many of us are more prone to think about what other people may think of us if I do this or that or the other, if, or if I say this or that or the other? We're more concerned about that than we are about what God thinks. And Hope and I are, are going through a devotional book, and uh, we're working through a section right now that talks about the attributes of God. It started out with his holiness, and then it moved to the fact that he never changes, and then it moved to the fact that he is always present, and then it moved to the fact that he is all-powerful, and then it moved to the fact that he is all-knowing. And these are things that we've been learning about, and as we learned and read about his being all-knowing, you know, every one of his attributes can either bring comfort to us or they can scare the liver out of us, right? Think about the fact that God knows everything about us. Now, that can be a comfort. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that even though I mess up in the things I say, the things I do, or the things I shouldn't, that I say that I shouldn't, you know, you know what I'm saying. Even though I mess up, Lord, you know my heart. You know my heart. And that can be a source of comfort to us. But knowing that the Lord knows absolutely everything and he's always with us, he never leaves us, he knows everything even though I don't say it, he knows it all, that can be something that should encourage us to move toward holiness, don't you think? And so Paul is saying here, okay, guys, I really hope I can come to be with you, but if I can't, live a a life of consistency. Live a life before God, knowing that he is with you. I think one of the, the most beautiful illustrations of a consistent lifestyle in the word of God is Daniel. Daniel was taken captive. He was just a young man, not that that young. He he was probably about mid-teens or a little older when he was taken captive from his beloved Jerusalem to the city of Babylon. Babylon was the armpit of paganism. It was a totally godless atmosphere. And there's Daniel. And he lived through three, uh, three kings, I believe it was, three different rulers, maybe even four. But he lived there, and he was a man who lived a consistent life. He never wavered. When he prayed, the Bible tells us that he prayed, he faced Jerusalem, went to the window, he faced Jerusalem, and he prayed every day. And even when he was threatened with his life, he continued to do as he had done before. As a result, you know the rest of the story, he got thrown into the den of lions. And There God protected him, and he continued to live, and he continued to serve, and he continued to be consistent, 
and he continued to be the right-hand man of these wicked rulers because they saw something different about him. And he was one of the most powerful men in Babylon, even though he had been alone, except for his three friends, he had been alone all those years in a very godless society. He never compromised. And that's what Paul is telling the Philippian believers here. Live a life of consistency. Whether I come to be with you or not, it doesn't matter if your pastor is around. It doesn't matter if your spouse is around. It doesn't matter if someone else in the church is around. Live a life of consistency is what Paul is saying. Character has been defined more or less as what I am when I am all alone. That's character. Think of it. What I really am is what I am when I'm all alone and no one else is around. Daniel had character. In his book, The Integrity Crisis, Dr. Warren Wiersbe believes that a lack of integrity, integrity is the major crisis facing the church today. He writes, For centuries, the church has been telling the world to admit its sins, repent, and believe the gospel. Today, the world is telling the church to face up to her sins, repent, and start being the true church of the gospel. We Christians boast that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But perhaps the gospel of Christ is ashamed of us. For some reason, our ministry doesn't match our message. And then in his book, A Severe Mercy, Sheldon Van Auken expresses a similar thought. He says, The best argument for Christianity is Christians. Their joy, their certainty, their completeness. But when the strongest argument against Christianity is also Christians when they are somber and joyless, when they are self-righteous and smug, then Christianity dies a thousand deaths. How critical it is for us to live a life of conduct that demonstrates the kingdom of God and how critical it is to live a life of consistency, whether others are around us or not. Live a life of consistency to the glory of God. A couple more points, but I'm going to save them so that we can uh, go to the Lord in prayer and so that I'm not jumping through them real fast. I think it's important for us to, to really grasp what Paul is saying here. Integrity is so important. And to have the joy of integrity is so important for us as God's people. Conduct and consistency. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the other two. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being citizens of your kingdom through faith in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would conduct ourselves in such a way and that we would do so consistently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, at this time, we'll have praises and prayer requests. I have some from Sunday school that I've jotted down, and I wonder if there are